Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. <laughs> Nina, come home. We are dying. Oh, my God, it's been a week, hasn't it? It has, it has. I can't... Um you don't realise when you key staff are away that the burden actually places on you. But I've been doing two finger typing. You've been doing well. I've been sending the king to actually fix up. Some things I can't understand what you're trying to tell me. I know that's why we rely on clean and come home. That's all I can say. So yes, yeah, we've had a busy couple of weeks. Yeah, um, yeah, we might be at our best today because we've just been working around the clock. And thank you for all our clients for allowing us to work around the clock, yeah, but true. we really do miss Nina a great deal. <laughs> We've got a pretty interesting space at the moment, don't we, as far as wage theft goes. We've got closing the loop coming through, which is going to make penalties like an individual penalty in Victoria be 230000 will go up to $1.5 million. Mm. Commonwealth, you know, company penalty $1.5 roughly in Victoria goes up to over seven. There's a lot of risk coming towards wage theft, so we thought we'd spend a bit of time this week talking about what is wage theft? And it's a bit of our discussion. We've talked before about them closing the loop, but mm. I guess the amount of organisations who are not paying correctly and don't understand the complexity of awards, we've even got the Fair Work Ombudsman coming out and saying mm. payroll officers are starting to fall off a cliff. They yeah. can't take it any longer. Yeah. And we're fielding three to four payroll questions, which we never used to do, mm. every week around how does an award work. And I guess can we just start there, Kim, and say when you employ someone, the first thing to determine is are they subject to an award? And people don't. No. People assume people either are or they're not. Mm. So in professional services, they often go, no, they're not. Yet in law, they are up until they're a first-year lawyer. Mm. So there's, oh, I want to just re-emphasise that, and awards are not easy. We were talking about an issue. Often there's schedules that sit behind which apply over the top of the actual award. Yeah. There is... They're so badly drafted by non-lawyers that yeah. are an industrial agreement which is done as a matter of habit rather than a matter of let's try and plan this so it makes sense. Mm. So I want you to remember, go to the award and as you're setting up the payroll system, don't assume the payroll system you've got is actually right because mm. in the more complex areas like when people are on public holidays and working, it starts to get a lot harder, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, that's what we had yesterday. Yeah, which is what we had yesterday. So that's the starting point. Mm realise and understand that don't rely on common law contracts to get you set off if you're paying over an award because that only relates to each payroll period rather than whether it's fair over a whole year. Mm. And if at any period of time a person does more overtime and as a result of that they'd be entitled to more than what they're currently being paid, that's a breach under the Fair Work Act. That's got penalties that attach to it. And that's sort of what's happening mm. is that a whole lot of workplace practices, and we'll talk about Melbourne University and benchmarking methods that have been used to try and get around awards, are just not working. Mm. And the Fair Work Ombudsman, because we have a Labor federal government, a better resource now, unions have almost no penetration, but they've found this is a new inroad into, into actually gaining membership and gaining traction. Mm. So unions are now focusing on two things, psychological hazards and underpayments. Yep. That's where all the action is occurring from our end and we're starting to get this range of cases coming through, which is genuinely pretty scary about the range of penalties that are being issued mm. as well. Mm. So I want you to remember all that as we go through and we're probably best to start with the Sydney University case, Kim, and Kim's going to be reading from her notes down again. 
because <laughs> we haven't slept a lot and our capacity to recall stuff is pretty poor. But what Sydney University did was not so much just the underpayment issue, it was the documentary process that sat behind Yeah, it. so they haven't been keeping accurate records of hours that have been worked. They haven't been keeping rates of pay, details of loadings and other entitlements to casual employees and just failing to provide the basic information that's required in their payslips. Yep. So um, when you think about that sort of stuff, and they're, I don't know what happened to them in, they didn't go do well about it at all, but I think they're just being charged. They're just being charged, charged yeah, so. but they're serious contraventions under the Act that yeah. the Ombudsman's pursuing. So what I, you know, one of the so casuals is one area where there's often laxity. The other one is part-time people who start doing extra hours mm. and suddenly trigger all the overtime provisions because the contract they entered into required them to say what the hours were, mm. but people have just allowed stuff to drift. Mm. So please be aware, they're your two high-risk areas. Yeah. That rolls into Melbourne University. Yes, and can I just say, for our university clients, we do have them, do understand universities and schools are a target for the Fair Work Ombudsman mm. at the moment. So that's, yeah. yeah. So Melbourne University was slightly different, wasn't uh, it? They were not, they had a, a range of casual academics and they were, instead of paying them for the hours they actually worked, they were using benchmarking. Which said, look, it wouldn't be normal for you to do one paper every X amount of minutes and yeah. therefore we'll pay you the number of exams you mark rather than, the hours that you actually worked. Again, yeah. very common habit. This goes back to the meat industry when they used to use tallies and they'd say, look, number of animals that were processed would be this and an hour, so we're going to pay you that to try and expedite the process and make it simple. Mm-hmm. That fell over in 1975, for those who don't know that. This is falling over now. Mm-hmm. So once again, all awards talk about hours, okay? Yeah. And that's what you've got to record. Mm. And if you don't record the hours people work, and that's very hard with virtual work, okay? Mm. Much more complex. If you don't do that, you're in deep strife. Mm. Let's jump on to the next topic, okay? I think the next topic is, yeah, the marijuana use case. We dealt with this case. We had this. Yeah, which is the person who was taking medicinal cannabis Mm. hadn't disclosed the taking, but even they requested on a number of occasions as to what was going on. Take it from there. I can't remember the rest um, of the facts on this. So it's an unfair dismissal claim. They terminated him after he disclosed that he was using medicinal cannabis after a serious incident. Yeah. Miss. The good thing for the employer is they had a very clear policy that required staff to disclose if they were under any medication that had the ability to impair them at work. And he was well aware of that policy but failed to disclose it. And then he was terminated because he failed to disclose it under the policy and the Fair Work Commission upheld that that was not a harsh termination because he was well aware of the policy and he had the obligation to disclose it. And so interesting and the full full bench agreed. But I guess the reason both Kim and I are raising it is I'm not that young, so I take some medication to keep me alive. Um, I'll be here for a few more years yet. (laughs) But in my peer group, there would be a number of people over years and I say you know, competitive national sportsmen. There's times when I took medications post-surgery, mm. post all sorts of weird stuff they used to do with sports bets in those days to allow me to compete. But during those acute times, the medications I took clearly would have impaired my judgment. Mm. And there wouldn't be anyone who's at the age of 60 plus who hasn't at some stage taken antibiotics that knock them around to a high level, taken analgesic medication that knocks them around, mm taking cortisone, which affects their judgment at times. Certainly it's mad medicine for me when I take it. I'm very irritable. <laughs> but the point is if you don't have a good policy that's sitting there mm. and you don't say to people, look, you must disclose mm. if you're taking any form of medicine that could affect your judgment. And that safety law says I don't care what the policy is. 
The role of the supervisor is actually to engage, and if they see someone's judgment impacted, so that's observation and engagement, yeah. then they've actually got to ask questions around. And that's Section 22 in Victoria and goes through the Model Act. That's monitoring health. Mm. You don't have a choice as a business not to do that. No. So this is a great case mm. because, yes, it does show the power of a lawful and reasonable direction properly placed in a policy, yeah. but it doesn't really understand or comprehend the safety obligation, which is actually this guy must have at some stage looked impaired mm. and did anyone ask? Mm. Did it, was anyone observing were doing anything about it? That's what the case is about. Yeah, it was a good one. Yeah, I thought it was a great case. You know, we, we come across this. Yeah, yeah. It's a real-life example. And, look, we commonly, particularly in Kim's area where people are returning from workers' compensation, often on medications, mm. which are actually helping them be at work, yeah. sometimes those medications are helping them get to work but not do it safely. Mm. So mm. think about it anyway. But, by the way, I have an excellent specialist in New South Wales who is an expert in THC and medicinal cannabis. Mm -hmm. So if anyone needs an assessment. <laughs> Let us know. I mean, I've I stopped smoking by. a long time ago, but I'll check in. Okay, let's let's probably go to the discrimination case next. No, 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 that's not the one. No, it's not that fail to consider it. Okay. Like this one. So I really like this one because this is right up my alley. So an employer terminated a mine worker. I think it was a mine worker. doesn't matter. Had spinal surgery, terminated him afterwards. They did the right thing and got a medical assessment to see if he was fit to come back and do his role. The IME said, no, he's not fit, but he provided a, a neurosurgeon's, his own treating neurosurgeons and sports physicians' opinions, and they said, no, he can come back and he's not restricted. The employer decided not to really consider that too much and just terminated him relying on their own IME yeah. evidence. Gee, they, got what, Kane, they got Kane for that. They baby. did. So they should have gone a step further. And so occasionally I come up across this. And what they should have done, I think, is provided the treating doctor's reports to the IME yeah. and vice versa and got supplementary and, reports. And got the iPhone out and actually showed the nature of work that's being done because how often has this happened where you and I have dealt with, particularly you and you've chatted to me, where they talk about someone's fitness for work and they have no comprehension besides a task list mm. of what the work physically and mechanically looks like to yeah. do it. And so get your iPhone out. Mm. Go and video exactly the lifting, twisting, turning, mm. the things that need to be done mm. so that the task list comes to life yeah. because you show the treating neurosurgeon and they go, oh, there's no way you can do mm. that. But none of that happened in no. this case and it just shows you can be too, my father had a saying, don't be too smart by half. Yeah. Don't try and get away with what you've got. Remember the treating doctor and the neurosurgeon, the people who are treating them will always be given primacy yeah. in workers' compensation mostly in common law unless they're duds, yeah. and certainly in front of the Fair Work Commission. Yeah. So, as Kim said, share the reports yeah. but provide the video and say this is actually what they're doing. Mm. And often because treating professionals talk honestly with each other, you'll get an agreed position. In some mm. parts of the law it's called hot tubbing when you put them in court where you put the two witness expert witnesses yeah. in together and you say, okay, we're shutting the doors. Yeah. <laughs> Come up with what you agree and don't agree with. And surprisingly they usually agree on a whole lot of stuff because yeah. at that stage they're seized with the right evidence. So rule one, yeah. get the right evidence to the people who are giving reports. Yeah. Great, Kim. Love it's it. Breastfeeding this time. I've got the breastfeeding. Oh, okay. This is the first discrimination case yeah, on breastfeeding. Yeah, breastfeeding. So this was introduced to the Fair Work Act in December last year as a discrimination ground for breastfeeding. Yep. And so what we have here is a returning, a mum returning from parental leave made an application for flexible working arrangements so she could express milk. 
And, you know, she provided lots of different alternatives. She told them what they needed. What she wanted ideally was just a private room, a fridge to store her milk and a comfortable chair. That was basically it. She said, if you can't accommodate that, can I take unpaid leave and go down to the mall to express in the parent room? Or failing that, can you put me in another store? They just said, no, no, no. We need you on site because you're a responsible manager. We need you on site at all times. They provided her with a tent to um, express milk in. She often wasn't able to take the breaks that she needed to do it, which created a risk of injury to her. And the employer got a bit of a bollocking. Yeah, rightly so. Rightly so. Mm. so I think that's the Victorian Discrimination Legislation not the Fair Work Act, isn't it, the changes? Um, no, Fair Work Act. Well, there you go. Anyway. I, I could be wrong. It doesn't this matter. This case what? was in the ACT. ACT, um, yes. It's still I don't know. Yeah, um, oh, well, look, I'm going to come back on that because I'm... Um, no, I did. I checked it this morning. Did you check this morning? I did. Where Where you? Okay, I'm wrong. There you go. That's it. <laughs> Damn. All right. Let's move on. Main topic. The VBA case, the Victorian Building Authority, has been prosecuted for reckless endangerment by WorkSafe, which is sort of fun, one regulator prosecuting another. I always enjoy that. And it was about a a guy who wasn't getting on with his supervisor. They wouldn't change the supervisor. They had him in a performance improvement plan. They were talking to him about redundancy and performance management. He's clearly not coping with any of it. And they made no adjustment at all. And sadly, and by the way, the problem involved we're going to do later, we'll deal with the person taking their life. So I want to just put, about that, yes. put a warning out there. But this is not an unusual set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I want you to be very clear. It is performance management nearly always fails in the traditional method of dealing with it because when I tell Kim she's not doing a good job and I don't do it in a good way, she just drops into fight, flight, and every time I push her to do things better, her performance will gradually deteriorate. You're not talking about me, really, are you? No, 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 because no, I've never, I've never said <laughs> that about you. Because I just I, want to clarify because that. you wouldn't go down a bad path; you'd hit me. So I don't do it. Okay, I'm, I'm aware of the risks that sit around it. But the truth is that when you start performance management program, very few people escape it. So I want you to rethink that and go, hmm, is there a better way to do this? And part of the better way of doing it is realizing you're trying to grow people. You're not got an end inside of terminating them because people feel it. And you need to make adjustments that sit around it. So please be aware that performance management, absolutely necessary thing, but the traditional method of doing a PIP, of actually making very clear that you're going to grind the person, of catching up with them every two weeks, of picking up at every fault they made, mm. rather than it being a coaching exercise of growth and improvement, usually leads to the decline in the performance of the person. But more frighteningly, leads to a decline in their mental health because no one comes to work to fail. There's no one, you know, when I look around my office, no one out here wants to fail. No employee wants to fail. And this is a circumstance where the VBU were completely unfeeling about the impact VBA. I put VBU in it. The VBA were completely unfeeling about it. And therefore, they became aware of a risk and it was a risk of serious injury and they were indifferent to it. That's reckless endangerment. Look, it's sort of... I noticed John Darcy and a few other guys online as we've sort of been corresponding say, actually, this is easy to prove for industrial manslaughter. Mm. It's an employee, so it's within 39F, so it's an employee. It's a person. It's a clear breach of duty, yeah. Section 21, Section 22 breach, so that's a, a section that's caught by it. Yeah. Under 39F, Section 25 is not caught, which is third party, Okay but a person who would 
have an obligation pursuant to Section 32, the reckless endangerment not to act indifferently would be caught. Very complex provision in Victoria. So, But this was a person who was definitely a person. They were definitely negligent. They, given their state of knowledge from the facts we've got, and they're very limited at the moment, would suggest it was a gross form of negligence which would trigger industrial manslaughter. Would it have been easy to charge? Because reckless endangerment requires you to have a knowledge of the state of mind of a person, yeah. whereas industrial manslaughter is a breach of duty and a gross breach, a very serious breach. Yeah. So they must have an extraordinary confidence about the state of mind, yeah. which means that would have been a perfect reason to go to industrial manslaughter. So it's a really odd yeah. decision. I just wanted yeah. to raise it as a really odd decision, but yeah. to show how much easier it would be. And as we look at particularly Victorian WorkSafe, four charges of industrial manslaughter in the last four months outside of this area, mm. it's pretty daunting, isn't it? Mm. Because you can see maybe in two years' time the same case would be a charge of industrial man or workplace manslaughter, mm. not a charge of reckless endangerment. Mm. Why do I want to talk about that at this stage? Why is it such an important case? Well, it's psychological hazard, major prosecution, mm. writ large, psychological hazards. Again, still no code or regulation in Victoria, mm. but WorkSafe are going after mm. it. So can people see that trend? We've seen two general duties breaches, sexual harassment and bullying in Victoria. Again, still no code or regulations that are pretty. So we're seeing psychological hazards take off and the seriousness of the charges take off. Mm. And at the same time around Australia, we're seeing really daunting fines being issued. In the Northern Territory and Titan case, $1.14 million dollars this was about the unloading of a, a piece of plant being done dangerously. Mm. But in that case, the director, I can't, the director's fine was something like 180000 I think, and I'm pretty sure the company was $940,000 fine for a Category 2 offence mm. where 1.5 is the top. You're seeing courts go to the higher end of the scale, whereas four years ago they were staying in the lower end of the scale. So when we're talking about psychological hazards, I want you to think of this. We are seeing throughout Australia a growth in the level of fine and penalty the courts are willing to allow. We're seeing a growth in every regulator of the willingness to prosecute psychological hazards and we're seeing a growth in every regulator in the willingness to step up the nature of the prosecution from a general duties to a jailable offence. So that's the learning of this case. This is a case which is really the thin end of the wedge in psychological hazards. These are terrible and tragic circumstances and I really want to say this is also a great reminder that we should be caring and respecting our workers and when things aren't going well, just ploughing ahead, we should be stepping back and going, there must be a better way we can do this. I mean, I know it's who we say we are as a business and how we work with our clients, but this is a moral question about how you manage someone and this was immoral behaviour. A great learning case on both law and how we behave as a community towards the people that we care for. Why don't we go on to do the case study? Yeah. <laughs> it's another heavy one, though. Yeah. All right. Kath was a long-standing supervisor at Patch & Co, a Vic Roads accredited road maintenance, repair and civil engineering business that designed and built roads. Neville was a supervisor on the road maintenance gang situated at Geelong. He had three permanent staff, two casuals, and used a range of subcontractors for soil delivery, removal, and asphalt delivery and laying. He was an award-based employee. Kath was aware that Lump's Garden Soil, one of their key suppliers of soil in Geelong, had an owner named Terry, who was a difficult man. Again, named after my dog. 
Because nice dog. Yeah, it was horrible. Mr. <laughs> Terry. Terry yeah. teased all staff, was rude and abusive, and if he felt his runs were being slowed by someone else's incompetence. He had a particular dislike of Neville, who he blamed for all of delays he suffered and thought he was incompetent. In nearly every case, it was Terry's fault. However, Neville had a stutter, was shy, and Terry mimicked him, harassed him and laughed at his stutter as it got worse, and it got worse. Oh, yeah. That's mine. I wrote this this morning. Sorry, that's Terry's mean. harassment. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Terry called him a gimp. I've heard you say that before, Andrew, to everyone because of his stutter. I Terry. Terry. No. <laughs> <laughs> Terry made a complaint against Neville to Cat. She didn't investigate, but she saw that Terry had charged extra fees under the liquidated damages part of his contract, paid them and arranged to catch up with Neville. She told Neville his performance was not acceptable and placed him on a pip. Neville tried to explain the behaviour of Terry. Before Neville started prevented him from speaking further, he managed to say that Terry was incompetent, that the delays were all caused by him and he was rude and offensive constantly teased and said hurtful things about his stutter and was a bully on sight. He didn't feel safe dealing with him and felt very sad not wanting to come to work. He explained that Terry rang him late at night with issues around delivery and he worked at least two hours extra a day for which he wasn't paid. Kath explained he had a higher base salary than the award and it covered all. However, there was no set-off clause in the contract and the contract had a specific clause on overtime. Had Kath investigated, which she didn't, she would have found that it was true that over a year the amount would be less than the total base payment, but over several payroll periods his overtime exceeded his base wage. Kath said the PIP would fix the relationship with Terry as she would touch base with Terry weekly and they would do a Zoom meeting after to make sure everything was going well. Neville left in tears. He sent Kath a detailed letter after explaining what Terry said was untrue and a note from his 2IC that affirmed it. Neville also said he should be paid for the extra hours. Kath emailed back saying everything will be okay and to stick with the PIP. Terry inundated Neville with complaints now that he felt supported by Kath. Kath still didn't investigate. She saw on Zoom that Neville was mentally falling apart and told him to get help. Eight weeks later, Neville took his own life whilst he was on personal leave. He had been off on work for two weeks on stress leave and neither Kath nor anyone at Patch & Co had reached out to him. Terry had been sending escalating abusive texts about being weak, questioning where he was and YouTube clips of Mr Bean's stuttering videos. He had forwarded them to Kath and she emailed back, just delete them and don't read them. All right, so question one. That was a big story, wasn't it? Yeah. I know when I write them at seven in the morning, it's not good, is it? Oh, you had a couple of tough ones that have been hard to read the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I know. It's not Andrew. I'm sorry about that. That's why, happy one. that's why you read. <laughs> Do Patch and Co and Kath have risks under safety rule and what are they? Be all the safety experts. Yeah. We'll sit back for the next couple. Okay. Well, the answer is they have massive problems. Kath is not an officer, but she is a person who is caught by uh, reckless endangerment. She's certainly a person for the purpose of that. Let's talk about reckless endangerment. Was there knowledge, subjective knowledge, of a risk of serious injury? Yes, there was. Objectively, were they indifferent to that? Mm. Yes, terribly. Kath yeah. would definitely be charged with reckless endangerment. And given what has occurred in Victoria, probably Queensland, Kath would go to jail. Certainly after the most recent attack on the VBA, not the VBU, I think this type of conduct, which is incredibly bad, where you know, see, are told about it, yeah. and the actions you say is go get help and delete messages mm. when it's clearly bullying, mm. clearly bullying. Ooh, 
Wow. Action Co is in a lot more trouble, I would have thought, because there is a clear breach as an employer of Section 21 and 22. So that's massive. That's that's Mm. the duty. It's a massive breach by TAF, who has specific knowledge about it, and it caused death, Mm. and nobody doubts that it caused death. So industrial manslaughter, and you're looking there at sort of $18 million as a maximum fine, I think Patch and Co are probably going to be closing their doors. Mm. I think they were definitely charged with workplace manslaughter or what we call industrial manslaughter. Next one's harder. Does Lump's Gardens have risks around safety and what are they Mm. for Terry? Can I just say to you, when you use a subcontractor, the subcontractor in any other state and territory would be a PCBU, okay? So they would be liable for all the risks that exist here. Victoria, not quite as easy because they're not an employer, but would there be liable for Lump's? When we look at Section 25, definitely, okay, absolutely definitely. So there's a breach for them there. Would they be liable for reckless endangerment? You don't have to be an employee for reckless endangerment, okay? So, yes, Terry's behaviour was aware of the risk of serious injury. Guys on personal leave knew it was still texting. Indifferent to it, yes. Terry's definitely going to be charged with reckless endangerment. Lumps, definitely reckless endangerment. But here's, here's the thing. If we say there's a duty that arises through reckless endangerment, it triggers industrial manslaughter. Mm. So the Section 25 says you can't, that's not a duty, but the reckless endangerment says, so lumps could be charged with a workplace manslaughter as mm. well. And I reckon they probably would be because it's one of those cases that WorkSafe would say, this shows the extent of industrial manslaughter, let's go for it. We may drop down to reckless endangerment in a plea deal, mm. but let's actually put it out there that we're going to do it. So these set of facts would have both Patch and Lumps with industrial manslaughter. They'd have both Kath and Terry with a reckless endangerment. Mm. Okay, let's go to the third one. Would the estate of Neville have a claim under the Wrongs Act for the death benefit? Yeah, definitely. So his dependents could bring a work cover claim. Yep. And all they would need to establish to bring a claim up for damages under the Wrongs Act would be negligence on behalf of... Even though the death was not at work? Yep. There you go. Okay, let's try the next one. Would the estate and the Fair Work Ombudsman be able to claim that that's for the estate and for the Fair Work Ombudsman to prosecute an underpayment case and would they be liable and what's the likely penalty? Yeah. Can I say to you the estate definitely has a claim, mm. okay, and they've got plenty of time to make it, so that's, yeah. that's, that's the other part of it. But the Fair Work Ombudsman in these circumstances would definitely go after it. Can I? So Turner's case is really simple, which is if you don't have a set-off clause and there's not a specific clause identifying how payment should be occur, you may be able to have a general set-off, okay? But here you have a specific clause that deals with overtime. Mm. So then you have to kick up to the next level, which says, do you have a set-off clause that identifies the set-off? And the answer is no, you don't. Mm. So the set-off won't work at all. So for every single period of employment, there is a breach. And there's no doubt here they'd be seeking significant penalties because of the manner in which they behaved upon notification. Mm. So you're looking at high penalties in Victoria, individual penalties against CAF who controls the payment. Yeah. The penalties, if it's taken on a case-by-case basis, so each pay period, which yeah. the Fair Work Ombuds not been doing but could as yeah. a matter of law, yeah. could be well over 200000 could be seven, dollars $800,000 penalties, likely to be something around about eighty dollars to $100,000. Business in Victoria, I'd say they'd be looking at maybe a 200000 but if they took them each level, yeah. could be massive. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's a very substantial part then they'd be entitlement to the back payment of wages. Then they'd be entitled to interest. Pretty worrying, okay? So just interesting bit on the side I wanted to take. 
What action could Patch and Co have taken to help Neville and prevent Terry's behaviour? Terry's company was under under a variant of AS4300, an usual safety clause. That's just a, a contract which actually says that if a person, if a contractor breaches a primary safety obligation, you can terminate the contract. So that's one of the things they could have done straight away. But the more obvious things are stop bullying orders. Mm. The more obvious thing is just telling Terry to stop, you know, mm. like just actually having a conversation mm. to investigate correctly. But there are so many things they could have done along the way they could have even called in WorkSafe and say, look, we're powerless to stop this. We're mm. not sure what to do. Can you give us a hand? Yeah. But there was these opportunities along the way. They could have got a Brady's order. They could have gone and said to him, look, let's join with you and go and see the police together. They could have done any of those types of things. And by doing nothing, the failure to do any of those things resonates in penalty, resonates if in this case Neville hadn't taken his life in a common law claim, mm. it would have been a massive. Mm. Now, that's it for this week. We got through. <laughs> Thank you very that. much for listening. We just loved having you. We're a bit exhausted. Nina, come home. She'll be back on Tuesday. Oh! See you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.